You are listening to episode 290 on University of Adversity. I think for me, the, the moment of going from, I don't want to do anything, I just want to kind of lay in bed and let all these people take care of me to being like, all right, I actually want to get better. I actually want to think about the world and my business. It wasn't really any book, but it really came from my, my girlfriend, now my fiance. After the accident, we were, you know, she was still in college at the time. She completely just decided to drop out of school, throw everything else in her personal life out the door and come live with me in the hospital. Wow. And I think for, you know, just seeing that somebody else could, I think, care about me and my recovery that much gave me, wow. you know, I, I think I can do this. Like, I, Life is going to give you challenges, struggles. It's going to force you to face your fears. Even though these may feel like your worst enemy, in truth, these are actually your greatest allies. My name is Lance Isios. Welcome to the University of Adversity. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the show. Today's guest name is Anthony Zhang, and this guy has bought and sold multiple companies. He's a true entrepreneur. And what's really powerful about this episode is that he has been through a lot. Most people will never have to go through what he's gone through and we'll get into it about his accident in Vegas, but it hasn't stopped him from continuing to move forward and build resilience in his life. He gives some great lessons on entrepreneurship, a lot of lessons on what he's currently going through and the business venture that he's up to right now, which is really exciting with Vino Fest. I know most people on here listening probably haven't heard about something like this. So I think it's really exciting that this will probably be the first time and to really open up your mind as to what's possible with investments out there because there's a lot. So enjoy this episode. Anthony Zhang coming right up. Anthony, welcome to the show, brother. You're recording your episode number two in Costa Rica. How you doing, man? Doing well. Glad to be on, Lance. I'm definitely jealous I'm not in Costa Rica. <laughs> well, we can definitely create a conversation of impact from from where we're at and uh, create the ripple, right? That's what I was saying. It's like during times like this, we really need to have these these conversations that can help people get inspired and think differently when they're in these tough situations. So, I guess want to kick it off here. Um, it's been quite the year, you know. It's uh, challenged a lot of us in different ways, different ways, shape, and forms. So. How has it been for you as an entrepreneur, as like a seasoned veteran in, you know, building companies, selling companies, and how was some of the skill sets that you learned, how did you apply that through the challenges that you faced this year? Yeah, so it was was definitely tough. Um, Definitely have, have not gone through a global pandemic like this where remote became a necessity. I think a lot of time it's been a, uh, a perk for a lot of companies that I've been a part of having the flexibility to work from home or work from Costa Rica is always nice. But I think when we were forced into everybody all remote and this is the only way we can do it, um, really, really wanted to make sure that first of all, everybody that I was working with was feeling all right mentally and emotionally to be able to work. Right. There's a lot of things going on both politically and from a health wise that can impact everybody's lives and um, just realizing that, hey, at the end of the day, 
you know, we, we want to run a great company and want to grow into a billion dollar company, but it's just a job. It's just one part of your life and having harmony between your work and the rest of the stuff that's going on is important. And uh, not wanting to be tone deaf to that was, I think, one of the biggest learnings I had and not just being like, go, 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 hit our goals. Um, wanting to also really take a moment to recognize everything else that's going on that may be impacting somebody's life other than the fact that we're talking over zoom rather than being in an office yeah yeah it's interesting you know i've talked to a lot of people about this and you know there's a lot of these conversations where i always start with you know present day with depending on where we're at in the spectrum of this this pandemic you know it started in march and then up until now and it's just so interesting because so many people have all the tools and they've taught all the things and wrote all the books but it's been their biggest challenge this year is because they've had to pivot and they've had to do things differently and they've kind of had to walk the walk, right? A lot of people, it's, it, it's been a really interesting time. It's seeing like, well, how resilient are you? How, how flexible are you? Right. And I mean, have yeah. you, how has that been for you as far as like the flexibility and just being able to like, you know, pivot when you have to pivot versus like staying in these situations where are comfortable. Yeah, I think definitely with our company, um, we were a small company to start out with. I think we started the year with five team members um, and all of us really had to find our groove in terms of first communicating asynchronously, being in different time zones, everyone's kind of moved back to where they're living mm -hmm. and then also growing and hiring and also trusting new people um, that you've never met in person before. So I think that was another aspect of it in, um, you know, the fact that the West has been pretty fortunate to have, have had some tailwinds because of the pandemic and the business has been growing and we've had to hire um, and the new folks that we're bringing on, um, you know, are all around the world as well. So I think just developing that remote culture and really having to commit to this remote culture for the foreseeable future um, is, has been definitely a, a pretty transformational experience for a company. Yeah, no doubt. And there's still a lot ahead. <laughs> like it's no, by, yeah. by no all means it's not over yet, but you know, it's really, it's going to be really interesting to see. Right. And I want to circle back to present day and what you're up to now, but I really want to go kind of take us to the beginning of your story. First of all, what got you in? Why did you want to be an entrepreneur? Like, why did you want to create companies and walk us through how that, how your story tied into all that? Because when I read about it, I was just like, it was very close to my heart. Cause I have one of my best friends has been, you know, in a similar situation. And it's really interesting to see, you know, how certain people do certain things and certain things happen and certain people don't and what is the how you know what is the thing that allows healing to happen and the resilience and all of that so walk us through that journey a little bit for us man yeah lance uh so i think you know in terms of my journey as an entrepreneur it started when i hit freshman year in college i was at usc and um you know just started a, a food delivery business and it was just something where i was making a few extra bucks delivering burritos to some other, other, you know, peers in uh, the study hall or in the library. And 
Um, it turned into something where students like me, if we were having some free time, we could just make some money going to go on and do some food runs for each other. Um, that really grew into, you know, an actual business when other people were asking me like, Hey, can I, can I have a job and become a delivery person too? And that was the start of Envoy Now, my first company. Yeah. And it was essentially just a college food delivery app where community was at the center. Everyone knew each other. It wasn't just strangers delivering to strangers like it is today. It was just everyone was at the campus. So you had that level of, I think, like just trust and friendliness that I think really made it grow. Um, and um, yeah, that was really something that I didn't really expect to do coming into college. I always thought, all right, um, I maybe want to start a business in the future, but first got to do the four years of college, maybe get some work experience, then probably get an MBA. But then everything just happened, you know, pretty, pretty organically and quickly when, when I hit college. Yeah. Cause you were being of service. You, you probably just were filling a need and you weren't even trying to, isn't that, it's crazy how that happens sometimes. How like you just, you know, there's something that you're not even thinking about starting a business yet. It just sort of happens because your yeah. intentions are in the right place and it's just filling a need. Right. And I, I love that because like, and it's, it's crazy how successful these, these food apps have gotten too, like just food delivery, you know? And so yeah. for a timeline, when was that versus like, you know, all these other like DoorDash and Fedora and all that, like, how are those different is as to like, and what was the timeline to like when those were created and when yours was created? So we were created in 2013. So that was when DoorDash and Postmates were still very, very new. Um, and they were, they were tackling all the tier one cities, so like your Chicago's, your New York's of the world. And we were kind of playing in these like tier two, tier three college towns, you know, uh, that at the time were not really on their radar just because they were smaller places like, you know, like Ann Arbor, Michigan, right? It's got a huge college campus, huge market for us, but might not be big enough for a DoorDash to want to play in. Mm. Um, so that was, that was really our advantage. Like, let's just go and land grab as many smaller markets while they're just duking it out in the big markets with their marketing dollars. And, um, you know, we were able to expand to, um, at the end, we had 22 college campuses all around the country. Okay. How does that happen? What are, what are, what did you personally have to do to expand a business like that? Because you've been able to do this a few times now. What would you, if you had to narrow down, let's say three key factors that the entrepreneurs out there are, are that, that they're not showing up with or that you see as the key pillars that allowed you to be successful because growing that, that quickly and, and to be able to do that isn't something that everybody can do. Right. And I always just like to unpack, like what is it within you that allowed you to create that? Because that's incredible. Yeah. Uh, thank you. First of all, I think uh, if I were to zero down to three things just to go from that zero to one and then one to 10 uh, with the business, I think the first thing is being willing to make mistakes and to try a lot. Right. I think a lot of, uh, a lot of people starting out, you know, maybe they've got an idea, they think about it and, you know, they come up with a million reasons in their head why it'll fail. Mm. Um, and they never reach that first step because they don't think it's perfect enough to release out into the wild, so to say. 
like our first version of the food delivery app was just me um, putting up a few posters around the dorm and telling them to text this number and Venmo this username to like handle the payments, right? There was no fancy app. There was no like order tracking algorithm and, and all the stuff we built later, but like it was very, very simple. And we knew that this was just the kind of intermediary step to get to zero to one. And then we went from one to 10, you know, we saw all of this, all of this demand at other college campuses, right? Like food delivery is not a new thing. A lot of people were trying to start it and we're like, Hey, what if we did a franchise model where we can bring this technology to a bunch of other kind of hustling college students who wanted to start their own thing on their campus. Um, and even then in, in the business model, we failed and, you know, learned. And I think that was kind of the main thing, just like fail and learn, fail and learn. And if you can get a good process around that, you're, you know, you're kind of just taking more at bats than the next person. And I think you can grow pretty quickly with that. Um, so I know I didn't give you three things, but I think no. that was kind of uh, the, the journey that I think uh, was, was the, a consistent line with all of my businesses. Yeah. Cause I think like the failing and learning aspect of the business is people aren't willing to do that long enough, right? Like, you know, sometimes you get shit kicked, you lose money, you know, somebody, somebody that you know says it's a dumb idea and you fail once and then we stop. What I love that you said there is that you failed and, and, and kept going each time. And I think that's a key factor is that now, would you say that most people that become successful just have to accept that failure over and over and over again? Like, because you're dealing with a lot of ego and like your attachment to that thing. Right. And, and it's like, well, my, my self-worth is based on my success of this thing. And if it doesn't work now, you know, you're comparing yourself to everybody else, like on social media, how are they successful? Right. And I guess where, where I'm going with this is like, how, how many times were you willing to fail before you gave up? And for somebody listening, how do you know when it's time to pivot versus keep going? You know, cause sometimes we hit the hurdle and we're like, okay, shit, like maybe it's time to pivot a different direction. Or is this just the thing that we need to get through? Right. Walk us through that a little bit of that process with you. Yeah, I think, I think that's a part of entrepreneurship that's not really talked about as much as like the, um, the early days, right? Like mm. all the mistakes that you have to make, all the failures that definitely hurt your ego, right? It's hard to remove yourself, uh, remove your self-worth from the success of the business. And um, I think it, at the end of the day, it's like belief in yourself, right? If, if I know that my life's mission is to build great companies, um, I want to be able to give myself that kind of freedom almost to, mm. to fail and to explore and to experiment. And, um, you know, if it doesn't work, at least know why it doesn't work, right? It's not because I want to know it doesn't work, not because I gave up on it. It's because like, you know, it's the wrong idea or someone else crushed us and did it better than us, right? Um, I don't want it to be because of me that the company failed. And a lot of times uh, companies fail because they die internally, right? It's, it's not always an external factor that, that happens. Um, so I think just having that perseverance 
And a lot of times just being the last man standing is, is, is success. Mm. Um, you know, you look at all these food delivery apps, right? There's so many of them, Uber Eats, Postmates, DoorDash, Grubhub, and, um, probably like 50, 60 of them have, have failed before getting to that spot, but they're just in that kind of last man standing type of mentality where you just need to try a little bit harder for a little bit longer than the next person to win. At the time when you're doing this, like when you say great companies, you want to build great companies. Like, what does that mean? Like, what do you see as a great company? Like where, what are the things? I think a great company to me is something that can change millions of other people's lives for the better. So whether that be, you know, with food delivery, it's getting people to, you know, a explore new different restaurants, getting restaurants, more revenue, getting people who need flexible jobs, that sort of revenue stream that they can do and just kind of connecting the food delivery industry mm-hmm. as things get more digitized, you know, with uh, my current business, it's taking something like investing in wine, which has been around for a long time, but, only has been available to really wealthy people and democratizing that, making it so that more people like me and you can easily invest in this lucrative asset class and hopefully helping them make money and, you know, giving them other opportunities with that wealth so that they can make their lives better. So I think at the end of the day, it's really just having a bottom line positive impact on a lot of other people. Yeah, man, it's, it's really it's so important to be able to have that long-term vision and just to be able to take the challenges and, and the haters and the doubters along the way as part of it, right? Like how many times have you had to deal with people that say, well, that's a dumb idea or there's too many of that or cause you think about food delivery apps or even something like Airbnb or even anything that has any sort of, you know, any sort of great company, like at the time it would have been like, you're crazy to do that. Like, why would you do that? You know, like you can't compete like Uber, something like that. Like that would have been just insane. But like somebody, somebody actually had to believe in the, in the thing that much and be able to take that ridicule and that be able to just constantly believe in themselves to be able to get through that over that hurdle. it's just, it fascinates me. Yeah, I mean, for me, especially with this current business, VinoVest, when I was initially fundraising it for it, I took 268 meetings, and I'm pretty sure over 90% of them said no. So it was definitely something that was, um, you know, not easy to go through, just knowing that most people are going to say no, but you just need those those few people to to believe in your business, and that's all that you need to, to make it go to the second level. Um, and I think especially with a lot of these game changing companies, they should be ridiculed, right? If, if everybody had the belief that this was a great idea, um, then it would be too easy. Mm-hmm. So, um, to me, I think it's just something that I've learned. It's, it's part of the process and it's part of the learning too. It's to really grow and shape that company and, um, not like prove them wrong, but still have a little bit of a, uh, you know, a little bit of a fire under your ass to, to, you know, to keep things going when things get tough. Totally. Tell us about your accident, man, because man, like <laughs> how scary walk us through that. What happened in Vegas? Yeah. So I was, uh, what was it? It was four and a half years now. 
and I had accidentally dove into a pool and I didn't know the depth of it and uh, hit the bottom of it wrong. So I dove in and directly landed on my head and it completely shattered my neck on impact. And with that, bone fragments flew into my spinal cord and um, you know, damaged my spinal cord. So um, what that means is that I immediately became a quadriplegic. I had no sort of function below, below my neck, essentially. And it was just floating there in the pool. And I was like, oh, my God, you know, something's wrong. And I just couldn't move anything. And it seemed like the longest time before someone, you know, even noticed and came and got me and immediately into the ICU, uh, spent five weeks in the ICU on a ventilator, had two emergency surgeries where they cut open my neck and wanted to kind of release the like pressure, take out the bone fragments and almost fuse my neck back together um, with, with metal cages and just, just kind of laying there realizing that I couldn't really move anything. I couldn't talk because I was on a ventilator and was essentially fighting for my life. What was going um, through your mind though? Like right that second when that first happened? Yeah, I just like, immediately, I knew something was wrong, but I, you know, didn't really know the extent of it. Right. I, yeah. I knew I could move. Um, what I didn't know and what I learned when I was in the ICU that like, when I was kind of alone with my thoughts was like, all right, well, this changes everything. I can't breathe. I have to learn how to learn how to eat again by myself, learn how to talk again by myself, let alone like even getting out of bed by myself mm. um, and adapting to this whole, whole new life and, uh, you know, being completely dependent on others for, for surviving essentially. So that was something that, you know, being an entrepreneur, being the CEO, you're always used to being, independent right you started it yourself you have other people relying on you and now it's completely the opposite and you're essentially like kind of a like i felt like kind of like a useless bag of meat for a few months when i was in the hospital and had nurses and doctors like thankfully taking care of me and physical therapists kind of being there to you know move me onwards with my my rehab um so it was yeah, it was a crazy time to say the least. Yeah, one of my best friends when we were 19, he was in a car accident. He's been a quad ever since. You know, this was like in 2003. And it's it's devastating, man. And, you know, I can't imagine what you have been going through. But what I'm also really interested in is like the resilience that you had to have to get through and heal that. Because not everybody, well, you know, the, get on the path of healing. Not everybody can do that. A lot of people will sit and be like, this is it. I'm, I'm defined now by this accident. And like, they don't have enough belief and determination to get through that. So how, walk yeah. us through how you did that. And I mean, I, I got I to gotta think that some of the things that you had to use in becoming successful in your business, you had to use in your own life to get through that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So I was, um, you know, after the ICU, I was transported to a rehab hospital specializing in, in spinal cord injuries. And the entire time I was, you know, obviously not able to run my company at the time um, and completely trying to focus on my rehab. Mm -hmm. And then I got a call one day from one of my co-founders saying like, hey, we 
business is not going well. Um, you know, we think that we should give all our money back to the investors and shut it down. Mm-hmm. Um, and that just kind of like lit this fire in my mind that I was like, you know, completely unaware of at the time that I really missed, uh, missed going back to the business, didn't want to focus completely just on rehab. And I think that um, having that balance too, between figuring out every day how to live my life and how to like, you know, work out and um, learn how to like do something as basic as brushing my teeth again, um, balancing that with kind of going back to something that was, you know, had previously defined my life, like building a business. Um, it was, uh, it was almost therapeutic for me. It was something that I could focus on and be like, all right, well, even though I'm in this situation where I have to relearn everything in my life, um, I'm in the lucky position that my mind is not damaged, right? I still have that going and I want to be able to use that in ways that can still help me and return back to uh, what I love doing. And um, for me, in those, in those six months that I spent in the rehab, um, having, having that balance was really, really helpful for me. And mm. it also kind of gave me the, um, gave me the motivation almost to work harder in my daily rehab, which then kind of turned into a positive uh, flywheel to be like, all right, I got a great day in my rehab. Like, let's go have a great day and uh, keep, keep building my business. Mm. Was there anybody that you followed or books that you read about healing from being a quadriplegic? Because, I mean, there had to be some sort of depth that you had to dive into within your mind to visualize because I know Dr. Joe Dispenza talks about this a lot. He talks about how, you know, you got a healing. If you, if you can visualize yourself already healed or, you know, it comes with manifesting as well is that that is going to help kind of rewire your brain over and over and over again from like kind of imagining all of the little pieces healing themselves. And I found that really interesting with his story because, you know, from his accident, but was there anything for you that you, that helped you as like an example or somebody or book that, that you followed in order to kind of get the healing process going? I think for me, the, the moment of going from, I don't want to do anything. I just want to kind of lay in bed and let all these people take care of me to being like, all right. I actually want to get better. I actually want to think about the world and my business. Um, it wasn't really any book, but it really came from my, my girlfriend, now my fiance. After the accident, we were, you know, she was still in college at the time. And she completely just decided to drop out of school, throw everything else in her personal life out the door and come live with me in the hospital. Wow. And I think for her, you know, just seeing that somebody else could, I think, care about me and my recovery that much gave me the motivation to be like, oh, if, like, wow. you know, I, I think I can do this. Like, I, I'm being pushed to do this, but enough of a push turns into momentum. And, you know, at, after a few weeks and months, like, I actually wanted to do it myself. So I think that, you know, to your point, like that manifestation 
Um, sometimes it does have to be external, right? Other people telling you that you can do it yeah. and telling you over and over again, you start to believe it. You start to, you know, first day you're reluctant to do it. Second day, you're like, oh, maybe you kind of like it. And now you kind of get into a groove and um, having, having McKenna there and helping to encourage me, um, even when I was down, even when, you know, wasn't able to do something that I wanted to do. Uh, she was like, that's fine. Like we've got, we've wow. got tomorrow. Let's try it out again. And even when I wanted to give up, like say something as small as like lifting my arm again, I was exhausted. Didn't want to try it again, but she's like, Hey, if you just do 10 more reps today and you know, you're just going to be a little bit stronger for tomorrow. So I think just having her is almost like a, like a guardian angel during that period was, was, uh, you know, I, my life to thank for that. Wow, man. It's so important having a partner like that to help, right. To stick through all those hard times. Like I'm so lucky. I mean, we, you know, some, an accent like that, that turns someone into a quadriplegic, it completely changes, right. It can completely change a relationship, a dynamic of relationship. And like, in that rehab hospital, I'd seen so many, even married couples split up because of the injury. And to have her just not only like not question that at all, but then just like double down and triple down and really dig deep to be there for me when, when I couldn't really be there for her in any sense, it just, you know, it really shows you that, you know, you shows the true, true character. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So Okay, walk us on the time. Walk us through the timeline of that. So your that was what four and a half years ago. You're 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 healing, and you you from the article I read that you regained mo- movement in your arms and your upper body. Is that right? And then where whereabouts are you now on the healing journey? Because like that doesn't happen to everybody, man. Like a lot of people don't heal from that injury. Yeah, I mean, with a spinal cord injury, it's one of the few things that your body can't really repair, right? It's not just yeah, it's crazy. That are, bones that are broken. It's, it's your nervous system. Mm. And uh, a lot of times you just kind of, you know, you stay where you are. You just kind of learn to adapt. And I was lucky to regain a little bit more function, um, you know, in my upper body and uh, more feeling as well. And, you know, using that as much as I can to still, you know, regain independence. So today I'm, I'm still in a wheelchair, um, definitely a lot more independent now and every day kind of learning new, th- new ways to do things or finding new uh, kind of adaptive tools to be able to do things. Um, but yeah, I'm definitely really lucky to have regained some movement. And um, I think today, like there's still no cure for a spinal cord injury, but I think my mentality is to just work out and be healthy and be in the best possible position so that if there is say a clinical trial, if there is kind of some sort of medical experiment, I want to be first in line and Mm. being the best possible candidate um, to be able to, to take that leap. So um, that's kind of where I am today. And that's, you know, it's been four and a half years of learning and, you know, being, you know, finding, finding new ways to do what I used to love. And during that time, you decided to create another company instead of just doing that, which would be a lot for most people. So talk us about VinoFest, man. Talk us through. First of all, my question is, well, first, give us a little bit of background as to why you chose wine and 
how is this different? Like how, why is it a good investment in wine and how is it different than what other, what else is going out there with wine these days? Yeah. So it, it happened a few years ago. I think I was just reading, uh, you know, an article in Bloomberg that I came across with that said, uh, fine wine has outperformed the S and P 500 over the last 30 years. And I was like, Whoa, that's kind of weird. Uh, looked into a little bit more and I was like, okay. Um, First of all, that's crazy. I did not know that. Second of all, it kind of makes sense, right? We all kind of know like, you know, age is like fine wine, right? Like it means that the wine's getting better as it's older and as it's older, it gets more expensive. And um, it's just a supply and demand thing, right? Like once you drink a bottle of wine, it's gone and um, less supply equals more demand. So I was like, okay, um, how can I invest in wine? And I was looking around and didn't really find any good solutions, right? You can uh, it's really expensive to have your own wine cellar. Most people don't have, you know, thousands of dollars to drop on building a room in their home. Um, the other thing is it was hard to get access to the right wines. You know, going to auction or a lot of these wineries are really, really exclusive to people like us where we don't have any wine connections. Um, and then finally, I just found that, you know, there's, you know, there's a stock market for stocks, right? There's other places like eBay where you can buy and sell cards or sneakers, but there wasn't like the equivalent of that for the wine world. Um, and it really just got me thinking where if you could create a website where people can easily buy into the world's most investable wines, where we could handle the storage aspect for them, and then they could sell any time to anybody digitally, globally, like we could create a huge market. Um, you know, think about, Think about how many people are interested in wine in the world, mm. right? And how many people are interested in investing. I bet that overlap is a huge group of people. And they're all underserved because they don't know that, A, wine has been such a steady investment. And especially with how volatile the world and the stock market has been, it's always good to think about diversifying a little bit out to not have all your eggs in one basket. Um, so it just seemed like the timing was right. You know, I met... I met the need myself and I thought there should be a better solution. And I'm like, Hey, I must, you know, I'm not alone in this. So that's why I decided to create VinoVest. When did you create that? So this is, this company has been pretty new. I, I started it back in um, October with my co-founder. Um, and um, it's been, it's been a crazy ride, you know, with, with the pandemic, right? People are stuck at home. Definitely drinking. drinking well. Yeah. What a time. I mean, you're so definitely a great year for us wow um so you said i think it was on your website about wine being more consistent than crypto and gold. can you crypto and gold is that what you said can you walk us through a little bit more about how what you mean by that because this is super interesting you know to yeah. i've never even thought about you know investing in wine but you're right like it's people are always this stuff is very, there's a lot of scarcity in wine and there's a lot of history and there's a lot of, there's a lot of cool stuff that goes into wine, like a lot of, you know, technique and, and it's, it, it's very rare and it's, in, and it's so interesting how it's made and how during times like this, people are still going to, people are still going to drink wine. Like there's. Yeah. No, I, I think that's the, that's the thing with the consistency, right? Like during, Good economic times, bad economic times, like people are going to be drinking wine, probably even more during the bad times. Yeah. And that's always really seen on like a return standpoint, right? 
this wine just needs to age properly and get older and you know global consumption is going to do its thing which is why as long as you pick from the right wineries and store it properly you're almost you know it's, it's very very hard for it to lose value and it's almost always going to gain value every single year consistently um, so I, I do think of it as something you know with scarcity like gold like real estate where you know, it's something tangible. It's something that has utility. And at least from, you know, the last 30 years have shown us it's been really, really stable. So for example, it's only had six down years in the last 30 years. If you compare that to the stock market, stock market has had like 12 down years in the last 30 years. So yeah. it's, uh, you know, it's very, very stable. And I don't think people are going to stop drinking and wanting, you know, high-end wines anytime soon. How is it different than Gary Vaynerchuk's wine library or that he used to do was, was his just kind of buying and selling or, you know, what, wh how does that, how is it different and what other competitors have you noticed? What are they doing? And like, how is yours different? Yeah, I think uh, Gary's, you know, been, I think a huge, huge proponent of just more people getting into wine and understanding wine. Cause mm. I think uh, you know, a lot of people enjoy a nice glass here and there, but it's, it's confusing, right? There's so many different names and grapes and it's hard to really, I think, like figure out what you want. And yeah. what he did was make, I think, make learning about wine fun. And that's also, I think, a part about what we want to do. Mm. But his is more about consumption, right? His is about, all right, we want to sell you wine at a great deal. And, and here it is. For us, it's about, we think this wine is going to be a good investment to hold on to for five years, uh. for 10 years. Genius, bro. Say, yeah, I would say the difference for us is like we're looking pretty long term. We're helping people build wealth over time, while his is kind of focused on like the now and the immediate consumption. How have you gotten, how has it been getting these wineries and these companies to buy into this? Right? Because think, this is a whole interesting, there's a lot of history and a lot of ego with wine. And it was the same thing. I had a buddy who created it's it's a little bit different, but it's the same sort of thing. He created wine on tap, right? And like high quality wine on tap. But like there was a lot of hoops to go through to like convince people that it doesn't, you know, that you can't, you can do that and keep the quality and whatever. But there's a lot of, there's a lot of challenges with wine, especially when you're yeah. dealing with these different countries and these different rules. How has that been for you? So I think you're completely right. Like the wine industry has a lot of tradition and history. Yeah. And sometimes that can get in the way of, of, you know, innovation. And for us, like, especially when we're working with a lot of these high-end wineries where they know that their wines are going to appreciate in value as they're being released. You know, they already have wait lists, so they're, you know, they don't really need help selling their wines. For us, what we're, what we're proving to them is that we can help them connect to a new generation of consumers, right? If you think of a wine collector, you probably think of, like, some kind of, like, you know, older guy with like a, you know, a lot of money and, you know, is probably like, you know, very, very, very kind of like on that 1% level, yeah, right? I, yeah. Um, and we're bringing it to a lot more consumers who are maybe just starting their kind of career, just starting to build wealth. And, you know, like, like I think most people are confused about which wines are the right ones. And like, um, they're interested though. And, um, we're helping them kind of reach that new generation. And I think that's really why we've been able to um, grow so quickly. 
Yeah, I I'm interested in this because I spent many years in bars. Like I, you know, ran and managed some of the highest best cocktail bars in in Australia in Sydney. I worked at the Four Seasons. I did the cocktail list there. You know, I I've worked in this industry for a long time, so I really appreciate it. And I learned to appreciate the consumer and that it's it's what I loved about the industry is that it wasn't the drinking aspect and the toxicness that can bring that, but it's like the, the, the art, the craft of a nice glass of wine with dinner, um, learning about it and appreciating that a lot of work went into this and where it came from. And that really interests me. What, what my question for you is how do you educate people like on, first of all, what is a good wine to invest in? Like what makes a good wine, what makes an investable wine? Second, like generally just educating people because a lot of people don't know anything about wine. You know, I know a lot about it. Well, I, I wouldn't say a lot because <laughs> there's a lot to know, but yeah. you know, I have an idea of the varieties, but it's not something that I would get into unless I actually knew a little bit about it. So first of all, like, yeah, how do, how do you educate people on those on those aspects? Yeah, I think those are two great challenges uh, to to bring up. And in terms of like the first thing, like how do you know what wine is investable? Mm -hmm. I usually try to relate it back to like you know the stock market, right? Which I think a lot more people have familiarity with. Like mm -hmm. there are your kind of like large cap, you know, blue chip stocks like your apples and Amazons of the world. Um, you know, why are they investable? A, they've been around for a long time. They've got a great track record and, you know, they're growing global companies. Same with, same with a few wines, right? If you look at kind of the, the Apple or Amazon equivalents, you got to go to Bordeaux, France, you know, your first growths like Chateau Lafitte, Chateau Latour, Chateau Mouton, like those have been around for hundreds of years. You can look at the numbers and be like, all right, this, this wine released 10 years ago was $200 a bottle. Today it's $2,000 a bottle, right? Mm. That's really, really repeatable. And, every single vintage, every single new year, they're creating great wine and it's consistently great. Um, so I think that's kind of the way to start and kind of relate that back to it. And like, you know, there's your equivalent of like emerging markets, right? Everyone kind of wants to find that next new hot stock, like the next Tesla of the world. And there's new wine regions, right? There's always new winemakers that are coming up, you know, exploring new regions or um, making new fantastic wine that's being rated and um, for us, that's kind of the exciting, the kind of like new frontier of it and kind of being a little bit more speculative, but taking a bet that we think that this winemaker or this wine region is going to explode in the next 10 years. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of how I would think about it. And, um, you know, when we're looking into understanding wine from a basic standpoint, I think we just got to know that like, A, a lot of wine is made to be aged before it's consumed. And as as it ages, it's going to get better. And as it gets better, it's going to be more expensive because there's less of it around. And I think once you can kind of grasp that basic supply and demand, then things start to get interesting when you dive into the nuances. Mm. Yeah. So have you noticed an interest in the younger demographic getting, because there, like you said, there is that stigma, that snobbiness around wine and, you know, that you have to be a certain way to, to, to totally. get involved. And I've worked in, in restaurants where that was changing, you know, instead of having 
that feeling like you have to be at a fine dining place and it has to be served like this. They started to kind of add these like, you know, casual elements to it to make people feel more comfortable with it because it can be intimidating. And I'm guessing that's probably the case with the younger generation as well with like trying to wrap their head around, you know, wine and having fun with it because it is a fun industry, but it also brings its, it's, it's like it's stereotypes, right? Yeah, I, I think so. And I think especially with like wine and then also with investing, right? Both are, I think, yeah, come with that stigma of like you have to be really rich to diversify or you have to be really, really knowledgeable to know about wine and start drinking nice wine. And both can be really intimidating. Mm. And for us, like we really want to make it accessible. We want to make it simple and just be like, hey, like, you know, let's get started, right? If you there's no better way to learn about something than just like diving in, dipping your toes in, and we want to educate and make this a fun journey. So, mm. you know, for us, when we get started, you don't even even have to pick the wines. We just ask you, all right, for this investment of say a thousand dollars, how long do you want to invest this money for? How aggressive do you want to be? You know, do you want to be, you know, kind of conservative and stick with the well-known ones, or do you want to be more aggressive, right, and go and go on the emerging regions? And then that's it, right? Those are the things that our team and our algorithm takes. Mm. And then what we do after a few days is give you a wine portfolio. So you're already there. You're already learning about the wines. And then you can just kind of learn as you go. We help you track the price of the wines. You know, we help show you where your wine is stored and help you learn about why we think that wine is investable, right? Maybe it got high critics ratings, or maybe this was a really good year for, you know, Burgundy, for example, and we think that um, the prices are going to rise and we kind of try to give them content as they go to be able to feel more comfortable investing in this new and exciting asset. Do you see an area as being like a no-brainer investment versus like a risk? Because I guess a lot of them has to do with weather, right? But there's certain areas that are going to be good no matter what. Right. But I was watching, I forget what I was watching about in France. There was this year when I had to do a champagne and there was this, all this rain or something. And then they ended up not having, I could be butchering the story, butchering the story, but like there was a huge issue because of their, the, the amount of rain or because of the amount and they couldn't produce all the, all the, the wine that they wanted yet. There's places, you know, in Australia that it's pretty hard to, to mess up, you know, like yeah. it's pretty consistent. So is there like, do you have like scales like that? Like kind of like no brainer investments where like you're pretty much, you're pretty safe versus areas that only have wines that do well in certain times. Like what's that like? Yeah, we, we definitely do. Cause like, even though wine is like pretty stable um, in terms of the investment side, there still are kind of your, your risk, right? At the end yeah. of the day, you're at the mercy of nature, right? It, yeah, it's totally. uh, it's, a bunch of grapes and and farmers and they're creating something really great and beautiful at the end of it. Um, But I think for us, like as long as you stick with those great regions that no matter if it's a difficult year, if it's a great year, they can still find a way to work with those grapes and kind of be able to produce wine that people love and people are are craving for year after year Um, places like Bordeaux and Burgundy and, and Champagne you know, are always going to be, I think, pretty safe bets in terms of what people want and what people can enjoy. You know, some years it might be less quantity 
but the demand's still going to be the same, right? Everyone, you know, I think people are going to stop wanting champagne anytime soon. Mm. Yeah, for sure. It's, um, it's an interesting industry. And I mean, what you're doing, you could essentially do with other things too. You could do it with beer, you could do it with, but it's, it's not, it wouldn't be the same, but you could definitely, you could definitely do it. I think the closest uh, comparison would be like, like whiskey. scotch. Yeah. yeah, or, yeah. Like whiskey. Like yeah. whiskey has that thing where, you know, the longer it's aged in the barrel, the, the more desirable it is. Right. Yeah. Like some of those like 40 year old single malts are going for like $20,000, $40,000 a bottle. Um, yeah, so like wine and whiskey, they get better with age. Right. So mm. as long as you can figure out a way to get it and store it properly, and then sell it at the right time. Like that's, you know, that's kind of the end of the investment, right? They're pretty much going to age and get better by themselves. So I think the biggest challenge is almost patience, right? With, mm. with I think a lot of good things, right? You just want to kind of sit on it and let it ride. What's been your biggest challenge in this endeavor versus the other ones that you've been in this? Has it been the year that we've had or like, what are some other things that you've noticed that have come up that have really like pushed you to the limit? I think it's really been the, uh, the pull of the market. I, mm. I don't think I've been a part of a business where we've had so much, I think just like interest in something new that we've had to almost kind of get pulled along as a company. I think in the early stages, a lot of times, like it feels like you're pushing things along and you're kind of like forcing things to work. Um, you know, it kind of feels like an uphill battle, but here it kind of feels like the company is just taking us for a ride and we're trying to catch up to it. Um, and that requires, you know, building a lot of things as you go, you know, saying to the customer, like, Hey, like, yes, we'll get this right. And then like right after the call, when you hang up, actually going and building it and making it right or finding the things you need to do to make it right. Um, so I think it's a lot of, uh, it's a lot of improvisation. It's a lot of adapting and, um, it's been, you know, it's been a huge challenge, but also feel very, very lucky to be in that position. Yeah. Cause you can grow too fast and it can be, it can be pretty destructive as well. Cause you can't keep up and then people are complaining exactly. and like right? you want to make everybody happy. And yeah. of course I would love a million people to join tomorrow, but can we do that tomorrow? No. Right. I think what you said is really important, right? There's, there's growing fast and there's growing too fast. And I think you've definitely seen, you know, it, uh, examples of companies growing too fast or getting too greedy and kind of thinking about the now and maybe benefiting today or this month. And then months later coming to regret it when, you know, when things kind of come full circle. So I think that's also an important lesson as well to, for, for me to take. So when scaling, like how, how are you doing with the hiring? Like how that's, that's challenging too, to keep up. Cause I mean, I know in the entrepreneurial journey, it's, you don't want to bring on too many people when you're, you know, not making enough, but then you also don't, you, you have to have the right flow of people and you're obviously hiring remotely also, right? Like how do you, how do you gauge that with scaling and hiring and what's that process like for you? Yeah, it's, it's not easy. Um, you know, right now we're in the phase where as, as a small scrappy team, like everyone was used to doing a bunch of things, um, you know, wearing many hats and 
you know, realizing we're at the point where like, all right, well, this was actually a full-time job for someone else, right? And transferring all of that kind of tribal knowledge that we had into something more formalized, something written down and actually being able to teach someone else that, uh, first of all, it, it, uh, it takes a lot of trust, right? Like trusting somebody else to do something that you knew was vital for the company. And that letting go process um, is never easy for anybody. Um, so that's kind of at the stage where we're at, where we need to recognize that, hey, I want to be able to focus on the most high value things for the company tomorrow. So that, you know, with these things, it's kind of almost like ripping a bandaid. Like, I know I can do it for a little bit longer. I know it's going to be tough to let go of it and give the responsibility to a new person. But this is what the company needs for long-term success. So I have to do it now instead of pushing it off until everyone's overworked, you know, two months later. So, yeah, no, I completely agree. What, what about, so I, something that's a little bit off topic, but sort of on topic. I want to ask you, what did you learn from Mark Cuban when you pitched him? Oh, um, <laughs> I, had to, I had to ask you that, man. I, I wanted to ask you that because, you know, everybody, I, I actually had Kevin Harrington on the show, one of the, the, the oh, first nice. sharks and, you know, that's exciting just to have that conversation, man. Like, tell us a little bit about that and like, how did that impact you? Yeah. Um, so this was when I was still running my first business on point yeah. now. Um, we're doing a college shark tank pitch session. And, you know, I, he had just finished completely ripping another team to shreds. So he was really <laughs> you know, in the mood to just kind of wreck anybody that came by. So I knew He's I had ruthless, to ruthless, man. He's ruthless, but I love it about him. So instead of like pitching him, you know, you know, in, in front of the audience, I literally went and sat right next to him on his couch. He's like, you think that's going to work? I'm like, let's find out. Right. I, you know, just wanted to like see him as an equal, not as like a God as everyone sees him and, you know, pitched him. Um, you know, he was definitely skeptical, asked me a lot of questions and he was like, you're feeding me bullshit numbers. And then his executive producer, Mark Burnett was like, Hey, you want to, you want to, 10% for hundred K. I was like, yeah, he's like deal. He, he reached out his hand and um, in the middle of Mark Cuban grilling me, I was like, there's a deal. I'm going to shake his hand and done. So that was kind of the biggest lesson is like, Hey, if you have, if the deal on the table, like just take it, shut up and leave. And that was a, that was an awesome experience that I think gave me a lot of confidence um, to, to be able to kind of push on for everything else. Mm, yeah. It's awesome, man. If you had to give the, a tip to all aspiring entrepreneurs or people that are going through right now in 2021, trying to get through all the shit, all the chaos, what would you tell them? I would say, uh, you know, there, there are going to be better times. You know, it can, a lot of times it can feel like you're just in this uh, kind of like depressing, like loop where you're trying or you want to do things and they never get done. But um, I think the main thing is to realize that you know, this is, this is going to pass. This pandemic is going to pass. And whatever you're going through on the business side, be okay that you maybe not didn't get as much done as you wanted to, or be okay that you, know, you failed. Just like make sure you're learning. Make sure you're still you know, looking ahead and just having, having that short memory and just keep taking shots at what you want to do. So that's, a, that's my biggest advice. Love it, brother. Where can we find you and learn more about 
all you're doing and how can people get involved? So I'm pretty accessible. Um, just email me, Anthony at vinovest.co. Um, I read everything. I respond to it. So whether you're starting a new business or you're interested in, you know, trying a new investment like Vinovest, um, you know, I'm, I'm happy to talk and, you know, just wanting to, wanting to help. Awesome, man. Lots of wisdom there. To, so I always end the conversation with one last question. Now, everything that's gone on in your life, challenges, struggles, adversity, if you could take away one thing, what is one lesson that adversity has taught you? I think the main thing is having the right support. Uh, I definitely would not be able to go through anything without support and realizing who your, who your true allies, who your true kind of tribe is, is you know, definitely realize that really quick going from kind of almost feeling like top of the world, running a company to being a quadriplegic, you know, not being able to do a ton of things that I used to be able to do and seeing who sticks by. And those people are the people that are going to get you through the tough times over and over again. And those are the people that you need to value in your life. Mm. Well said, man. Well said. Inspiring story. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing that with us, bro. It was awesome. Really, really appreciate it. No, thank you for, um, you know, asking those amazing questions and, you know, help helping me learn as well. Yeah, man, I'm interested in, I'm going to check out this vino vest myself. I think it's a great idea. I think it's, it's smart. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I love the whole, the whole industry. Mind you, I had to stop drinking myself for a little while because <laughs> I enjoy it a bit too much, but I love the, um, the craft of it. You know, I love, and that's what yeah. I, I said earlier. I love like, I love the cocktails and learning about the spirits and it's, it's like cooking. It's like food. It's, it's, it, it's what goes into that. That is like really yep. interesting to invest in. And usually yeah. you'd also want to learn about the families behind these wineries and what their values are. And that's also cool too, which, which definitely would help in investing. So yeah, man, Absolutely. I'm glad this is a great thing. And um, yeah, man, I appreciate it. I'm super glad we connect. We connected. Absolutely. Uh, likewise. And, uh, you know, for anybody listening, happy to give everybody, uh, you know, their first month free on the platform. So just say that you uh, heard about us on the podcast and we'll, we'll take care of you. Cool, man. We'll have everything in the show notes for everybody to check you out. What about social media and everything? So I'm, I'm on Twitter as well. Um, so I can, I can link that in the, in the notes. And I'm, I'm pretty active there. So cool. feel free to just tweet me and I'll reply. Awesome, man. Thank you so much. Thanks, everybody. Hope you guys enjoyed that. If you did, please leave us a review on Apple. And if you aren't subscribed yet, wherever you're listening to this, please hit the subscribe button. And a reminder, we are available on YouTube as well if you want to go watch it there. And subscribing is also appreciated. Much love, everybody. Catch you next.